Good morning. I could just sit there and watch those all day long. That's the funniest thing I've seen. That is really, really good. I, uh, it's again, it is so good to be with you. This is our third uh, time to come together, so this might be your first. Um, I, uh, we're really uh, taking God's word, looking at it, and seeing how it applies to to missions. Uh, let me kind of, if I could. Uh, kind of take you back for some of you who have not been here uh, to where we have been so far. And, and, and I'm going to ask part of the uh, congregation here to help me out, those who have been here. We've been looking at, um, well, actually this is the third one. So we've looked at uh, two different aspects of, of missions. We talked about the basis for missions. What is the basis for missions? The authority of Christ. Let's say it with a little bit more strength and passion, okay? What is the basis for missions? The authority of Christ, that's right. And then we came back this morning and we talked about the means for missions. Don't, don't let me down. What's the means for missions? The love of Christ. Okay, we've got to say it a little bit more strongly. It is the love of Christ, that's right. And so this time we're going to talk. So as you, you can see there's, there's kind of a, uh, there's a trajectory that we're on. There's an ascending aspect to what we're doing. Uh, this weekend. So we've talked about the basis for missions. We've talked about the means for missions. Uh, today, or now, we're going to talk about the goal for missions. I've been praying for two things uh, in preparation for our time here this week. Number one, uh, that that Jesus Christ, that you would see that Jesus Christ is central to missions. You can come at this several different angles, but at the end of the day, Jesus Christ has got to be central to all we do. He is the basis. He is the means, and he is the goal for what we're talking about here in missions. Also, we've been discussing this idea of setting a trajectory uh, for your missions. The idea here is that however you set something into motion, however you launch something, it sets a course for either success or failure. That's why we talked about the authority of Christ is the basis, and it sets a trajectory for your missions. To, to reach the whole world for Christ, to get the gospel out to the nations, it's got to be something powerful. It's got to be more powerful than, than just the need. And so the authority of Christ, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, is the one that sends us and launches us out, sets this trajectory for missions. But we all know that we come out of missions conferences like this, we're excited, we're on a trajectory, and then real life smacks us right in the face. And so the question that we answered this morning is, what will really sustain you? Because we can't have a missions conference every weekend, can we? Uh, we, can't, we can't just constantly listen to tapes about missions, and, and, uh, and those, those things are, are all good things, but they don't have a sustainability with them. What is the sustainability? It's the love of Christ. And that's available to us every day as we go to the cross, we more clearly see all the attributes of God, and particularly, in this case, the love of God. And so it sets a trajectory. Now we're moving towards the goal of missions, and that is the glory of Christ. <laughs> now, I have to apologize. I realize that, you know, in, in coming here today, uh, that, you know, I, I'm not here often, and so I share stories and I'm thinking to myself, it's like, I wonder if I've shared that one here before. And, you know, since I don't see you so often, I'm kind of pulling out some of my goodies, but oldies. And uh, so please forgive me if you've already heard it. Just, uh, just take a like, I love that story, and, uh, and let it set you on a trajectory uh, to missions. 
Uh, so I may have shared some of these things with you before. But back in 1984, um, I witnessed the first Olympics games that I ever really, really remember. And, and part of the reason that I remember this particular Olympics so well is because it was the Olympics about Carl Lewis. Uh, now, most of you college students, you probably, many of you weren't even alive at that point. You certainly weren't watching that particular Olympics. Uh, but Carl Lewis was this track star who kind of came on the scene, and he was kind of a growing uh, track star, but he, he wasn't there. This was his stage, and man, he showed out. It was good. Um, he did some unbelievable things. But kind of the story behind the story was this might be the first guy to beat uh, Bob Beeman's long jump record. He had set this record back in the 60s down in Mexico City, and, um, and no one had already even come within two feet of his record for a couple of decades. And so the buildup was this, car, this guy, Carl Lewis, I, I, I think he can do it. And, and so literally uh, the high jump event comes on television, and, uh, and supposedly there were over a billion watchers of this event worldwide. Pretty amazing. So Carl Lewis gets out there, and his first jump is, is great. I mean, he, man, he gets way on out there. His second jump, he gets even further. And, but here's what's interesting, if you know a little bit about track. Um, you, you get six opportunities of which you could take your best jump. And so after the second jump, he got way out there, and nobody was even within two feet of his, his original jump. The third jump comes around, and he declines. And everybody's, you know, you could feel the tension of the world. It's like, okay, what's going on here? He didn't break the record, um, so why is he declining the jump? So, well, maybe he's just kind of seeing what his competition is doing and, and that kind of thing. And um, so he went on, and fourth jump comes around. He declines again, the fifth jump. And, and literally, I was feeling restless laying there in bed watching this on television. The whole world is feeling. And, and the, the question is, what is going on with Carl Lewis? He's got the opportunity to break the record, Bob Beatman's record. Well, he passes on his sixth one. And, of course, uh, he's won the event. And everybody is asking the question, Carl, what in the world are you thinking? And so the interviewer comes up to him and sticks the microphone in his face and says, Carl, why did you decline on the rest of your jumps? You had the opportunity to break the record. Here's what Carl Lewis said. I didn't come here to break records. I came here to win gold medals. And that's exactly what he did. He won four gold medals, I mean, and he kicked tail. You see, the interesting thing about that is that Carl Lewis had worked that out in his mind, in his heart, before he ever got in the situation. He had resolved this so that when he got into the situation, it was clarified. He knew exactly what it was that he was going to do. And he could, he, having the goal in mind, he could avoid distraction from his ultimate goal, and that was to win four gold medals. So the question this morning, it seems, based on that little illustration, that story there, is what is the ultimate goal in missions? Here it is, right here in this passage. Uh, turn in your Bible, if you would, to uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5.
Here's the bottom line of what he's saying is the goal of missions. The goal of missions is right there in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. The glory of Christ's name among all the nations, that's the goal of missions. It's the glory of Christ put in simple form. Now, when I see that, the way I think, um, I really kind of thrive on, you know, kind of linear thinking, kind of a leadership type thinking. So if that's the goal, it makes me ask two other questions. Okay, if the goal is to glorify Christ among the nations, then where am I in the process? Where am I in this? The second question I want to ask is, what are the next steps to get me to that goal? And that's what this passage unpacks for us here. So, where are we going? We're clear on that. It's the glory of Christ's name among the nations. Where are we now? Well, that's that's between you and the Lord. What is the next step? How How do we get there, in other words? So, if the name of Christ is going to be set apart from the nations, that's verse 5, then here's what it says. He gives the solution in very simple forms. In verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So here it is. Here's the goal, is the glory of Christ among the nations. Where do we start? Right here it says that God sets apart his apostle for the sake of the gospel. The glory of Christ and the gospel of Christ, that's how we get there. The glory of Christ among the nations. So if the name of Christ is going to be set apart among the nations, then the gospel must have preeminence in missions. Let's read the passage as a whole. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That is a mouthful of a sentence right there. But here's the the focus of all this. If the, if the goal of missions is the glory of Christ, the question is, how do we get there? It is the gospel. If Christ's name is going to be set apart, we as God's people and ambassadors for Christ, we've got to be set apart for the proclamation of the gospel. That's how we get there in simple forms. So the gospel must have preeminence in missions. I think this passage gives us five reasons why that's the case. Number one, The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's why he's setting apart someone to share it, because it's so powerful, it transforms people's lives. It transforms whole societies. It transforms cities and countries. It changes the way we think, the way we act. Everything about our lives is changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. This is not just a message of reformation. It's a message of transformation. That's the power of of the gospel. Paul said later on, uh, or earlier actually in the chapter, he talks about uh, the fact that the power of God uh, is, uh, 
the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I just realized, I, did I tell you all to turn to Romans chapter 5? Totally reading out of the wrong passage. I just, uh, I'm, I'm getting blank stares, and I'm a little bit distracted. It's like, what did I do? It's like, I read, the, I read the right passage. I told you the wrong reference. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Easy for me to say. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It's going to make a lot more sense to you, I promise. It gets a lot better. So, Paul says in chapter 1 that the power of God for salvation is the gospel. Let me give you an example, um, a story. There's this guy several years ago by the name of uh, Tezar Putra. Uh, Tezar's from Indonesia. And, uh, and Tezar got to the United States because of God's providence. He literally blew Tezar over here by the tsunami. So there was a tsunami there in Indonesia. It kind of forced Tezar to come to the United States. Lo and behold, through a long string of events, Tezar ends up in New Orleans of all places. Guess what happens in New Orleans? Katrina hits. It blows Tezar. He leaves all his possessions there in, uh, uh, in New Orleans. And he ends up at the University of Memphis playing tennis. He had grown up playing tennis, so he came there. There just happened to be a guy there by the name of Lee Walker, who I was discipling at the time, and, and Lee was on the tennis team. And Lee was really starting to cut his teeth on wanting to have a ministry with some guys on the tennis team. And so one day, this little Indonesian Muslim guy shows up on the tennis team. It's like, doesn't have any clothes. Didn't, I mean, he's wearing some clothes other than the clothes he's wearing. Doesn't have any possessions. He's lost them all down in New Orleans. He shows up, and, uh, and, and, and lo and behold, Lee starts to minister to him and cheer Christ with him. And as we find out a little bit more about Tazar, he has a Muslim background. Uh, his father has told him before, the last thing he said to him before he came to the United States, Tazar, you know, I would rather you die and be alienated from our family than you would become a Christian. And so he grew up in that type environment. So Lee began to love this guy and minister to this guy and began to share the gospel to this guy. And eventually, two years later, Tazar came to Christ, the power of the gospel. You know, what was interesting is Tazar began to grow. Uh, he began to get a heart, because he was transformed by the gospel, to be able to share the gospel to other people. So he started sharing with some of the other folks around campus. And you know what ended up happening? The most absurd thing ended up happening. About 10 African-American guys on the campus at U of M came to Christ through this little Indonesian guy uh, who used to be a Muslim. It's an amazing thing. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm real strategic in my thinking, and, and uh, so we put a lot of strategic thought into how we think about the University of Memphis and stuff like that. And if I would have drawn up a strategy to reach, you know, African-Americans uh, at the University of Memphis, I would not have drawn him up anything remotely that looked like Tazar Putra. I mean, he was, yeah, he was a pretty good athlete, but, you know, the University of Memphis, a lot of people play basketball. He can't even dribble a basketball. You know, the University of Memphis is a great place to party, and a lot of people are always there. I mean, whenever we have a meeting like this, a party always breaks out in the midst of it. Tazar couldn't dance whatsoever. And so if I'm drawing this thing up, you know, I would never draw it up like that. But, man, he started 
living among the guys in his dormitory, started sharing Christ, and, and man, lo and behold, people started coming to Christ, and, and, and man, there are people walking with God all over the place because of Tezar Putra's, you know, witness. We eventually brought him on staff, and he continued it, but he's always had in his heart a desire to go back to Jakarta and to share Christ with his own people. And so now he's in seminary. This is several years later, and he's preparing and training, and, and, and we're trying to put resources together and come up with a strategy for him to go over there. To, to, but it, here's, here's where I'm going with this. I mean, you can see the power of this. Now, let's, let's see. So, so now you think about what started over here with this tsunami in Indonesia has ended up bringing in full circle an ambassador for Christ right back to the country with the gospel. Think about the irony and the amazement in that whole thing. But I want to rewrite the story. I want to reverse it for a second. I want you to think about it from this angle. What if Tazar would have been blown, God would have gone to so much trouble to, to blow him over here from the tsunami, get over to New Orleans and come all the way up to Memphis, and there was a Christian there. It's like, man, this is good news. This is exciting. But Lee would have only ministered to him by loving him, giving him rides, and so on and so forth. Man, that would have been great. But think about this. What if Lee would have never shared the gospel with him? Here's what would have happened to Tazar, humanly speaking. is Tazar would have gotten the aroma of Christ, but he would have never been transformed by Christ. Why? Because the aroma of Christ doesn't transform anyone. It, it lures us in. It entices us. It makes us, you've walked into your house before and your wife or your mother or whoever is, is in there cooking and unbelievable and you catch that aroma right when you walk in. What do you want to do? Man, I just want to sit here and just sniff this stuff all the time. Like, no. It's like, when is dinner, mom? I'm ready to sit down and eat. And in a sense, that would have been the story. If he would have arrived on that basketball team or that, that uh, tennis team, and he would have been able to smell the aroma of Christ, but that would have been all that it was. He would have never gotten to the feast. Think about this. What if Tazar, living in that dormitory, would have just hung out with those guys? Man, man, he, he loved them. He's hanging out with them. He's going places with them, and they're becoming really good friends. And probably somebody on the outside would look and say, man, that's a pretty cool thing. It's like, you know, here's some... You know, here's people of different cultures and, and different ethnicities, and, and they're hanging out together. Wow, that's great. But instead of just him bringing the aroma of Christ into that dormitory, he brought the gospel, and the power of the gospel brought salvation to those young men's lives. The power of the gospel takes us from just being a sinner to literally being missionaries. And transforming whole countries. Do you see what God is providentially doing here? As he, as he causes Tazar to lead his own country and goes through all these complex set of events. Why? To bring the gospel back to Jakarta. It's an amazing thing that God does. It's the power of the gospel. Paul talks about this to the letter in Philippians. He says, my imprisonment, my imprisonment, my imprisonment has, has served, you know, it's like, don't worry about me. My circumstances have proved to be for the advancement of the gospel. 
It's amazing to see Paul's mindset here. He says, hey, don't worry about my circumstances. The main thing is that the gospel is advancing through my life. So my imprisonment is no problem. He really gets it. He understands that there's a goal bigger than his comfort. There's a goal bigger than his circumstances. What Paul is concerned about is that the gospel makes it across the goal line. Think about this. It's like when we score in football, and I love college football, what does it take? You see those guys getting the ball. The ball has to cross the goal line. It doesn't matter whether you get across the goal line or not, but the ball has to get across the goal line. And so many times you'll see guys diving into the end zone, sacrificing their bodies. Why? To get the goal, to get the ball across the goal line. And literally, that's a picture of missions is that we give our lives, but we're stretching the gospel across the line. And it's okay that we get banged up and, and that kind of thing, as long as the gospel advances. The gospel is the only thing that's going to score anyway. It's the gospel of Christ. Paul even talks about this to the Philippians. He said, you know what? While I'm here in prison, there are some that are sharing Christ out of love and respect for Christ and for me, but there are also there are some out there who are sharing the gospel uh, because they're jealous. They have totally impure motives. They're just doing it to conflict me. He said, that's okay. The gospel has its own power. So even though they're desecrating it in a sense because of the lack of integrity in their own lives, the main thing is that the gospel gets into this prison, that it crosses the goal line. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And if we're going to see Christ's name set apart, it's going to be because the gospel has the power of God for salvation. Number two, so the gospel must have preeminence in missions. Why? Because the power of God for salvation. Number two, the gospel is also the good news about the resurrection. The gospel is the good news about the resurrection. You might be thinking, what does that have to do with missions and ultimately the glory of Christ? Let me just say this, and I talked about this last night. It has everything to do with the glory of Christ and the trajectory for missions. And this is timely since next week is is Easter. Look at what it says there. Going down through, let me read the passage and take you through verse 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Now he's starting to describe. This is where he moves into describing what the gospel is about. First of all, it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What does it concern? Verse 3, concerning his son. The gospel is about Jesus. Now it starts to get more specific. It says, who is descended from David according to the flesh. Verse 4, here's the part I want to focus in on and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 4, And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the gospel is the good news about the resurrection of our Lord. Now, let me unpack this. Let me read something from James Montgomery Boyce. He says it so eloquently here. Here's, here's the reason why this is so important. 
the resurrection proved that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that he accomplished what he claimed to have, uh, to have come to earth to accomplish. The resurrection is the historical base upon which all other Christian doctrines are built and before which all honest doubt must falter. If it can be shown that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead, as the early Christians believed and as the scriptures claimed, then the Christian faith rests upon the impregnable foundation. If it stands, the other doctrine stands. On the other hand, if the resurrection falls, the other truths fall as well. Let me read another passage to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Hold your place there and turn over there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, and it really is. I'm not teasing you this time. We'll start in verse 14. Here's what Paul had to say to the Corinthians about this. And it's a familiar passage, but man, this is why it's so important. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So in other words, if Christ hasn't been resurrected, what in the world are we even preaching? We're preaching nothing that can really make a difference in anybody's life. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, uh, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The resurrection has everything to do with the foundation for our faith. Let me give you six implications. I'm not going to unpack them, so don't be afraid. Um, I'm only going to unpack one. But let me give you six implications just to our doctrine. So, so hey, Boyce makes the comment that if this one doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrections, fails, then all the other doctrines which are built on this doctrine also fail. Let me give you some examples. Our doctrine of God rests on this resurrection. The doctrine that, that Jesus himself is God. See, this is really what this passage is talking about right here when it talks about it. It's like the fact that he was raised from the dead proves that he is exactly who he said he was. He is God. That gives him the right to say, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, which is the basis for everything we're talking about. So the doctrine of Jesus' deity here um, is at stake. The doctrine of God is itself is at stake. I'm not going to unpack that for you. Uh, our doctrine of justification rests on the resurrection. Our doctrine of sanctification rests on the resurrection. Our doctrine of eternal life rests on the resurrection. Our doctrine of judgment rests on the resurrection. All these unbelievable doctrines, what he's saying, Paul is, in 1 Corinthians here, that if, if the resurrection didn't happen, man, your faith which has been applied to these doctrines, are just vain. So you talk about setting a low trajectory for missions. How would you like to be going out and say, you know, I'm not really sure if, uh, if all these doctrines that I'm preaching to you are, are true because I'm really not sure or convinced that the resurrection really happened. It undermines the whole thing. Let me just take one of these and unpack it for you. 
So what are the implications of the resurrection as it relates to the gospel here? Let me read this to you. The resurrection of Jesus establishes the doctrine that all who believe in Christ are justified from all sin. You might mark this passage down. Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it for you, but this is how I would say it. Jesus was put to death because we had transgressed. That makes sense to us. But he was also raised because we were justified. You've seen that. He was raised for our justification. I used to wonder what that meant. He was raised for our justification. That doesn't make any sense. So listen to me again. Here's what he's saying there in Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Jesus was put to death because we had transgressed. But he was raised because we were justified. Here's what that means. The resurrection is God's declaration that he has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for human sin. Does that make sense? So by him resurrecting Jesus, what it means is it says to the whole world is that God has accepted his sacrifice and to prove it, he's raised him from the dead. This is the proof. Think about it like this. How are human beings, how are you and I as Christians to know that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross was really accepted as our substitutionary sacrifice? How would we know that? How would we prove that? Suppose that Jesus himself, that we didn't know this, and he sinned while he was hanging on the cross. So while he's saying, one minute, Father, forgive them, deep down inside, he's holding a grudge. It's like all of a sudden, his whole sacrifice would have been disqualified. In that case, the lamb would have not been without spot or blemish, and the atonement would have not have been perfect. Will God accept that kind of sacrifice? No. Did God accept the sacrifice Jesus Christ made? Well, for three days, the question remained unanswered. But then, we look at the cross of Christ, and I know that my atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open tomb and the risen and ascended Lord, and I know that the atonement has been accepted by my God. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins may have been. It's been atoned for, and it's been accepted, and his resurrection proves it. It shows that God has accepted his sacrifice on your behalf, and your atonement is good, and it's perfect. Because if there would have been one blemish, it would have been disqualified, and his resurrection proves it. So when you think about Easter this week, the doctrine of your justification, the thing that's going to get you into heaven. When Christ imputed his righteousness to you and you gave your ugly record to him and there was a, there was a, a payment for that, that, that record on the cross, man, it means, that resurrection means that you are justified 100%. And the gospel is the message of not only the cross of Christ but the resurrection of Christ. Go study the book of Acts. Over and over again, of course, they talk about the cross of Christ, but over and over again, read it. It's like they talk about, it's the resurrection, it's the resurrection, it's the resurrection, it's the resurrection, it's the resurrection. God, Jesus Christ, declaring his authority over all things. It makes my salvation good. It lets me know that all the doctrines that I believe and build my life on are are true. 
Resurrection has everything to do with the gospel. So the gospel should be preeminent. Why preeminent? Because the central message of the gospel is the resurrection on which all the other doctrines of the whole Christian faith is built. If there's no resurrection, there's no gospel, there's no good news, and your faith is in vain. And guess what? Christ is not glorified. The gospel must have preeminence. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Number two, the gospel is the good news about the resurrected Lord. Number three, the gospel makes worshipers out of sinners. Look at verse 5 there, leading on from the resurrection. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. You see what he's saying there? What this all brings about is to bring about the obedience of the faith. That's just another, that's a more descriptive word for what we would call a worshiper. A worshiper is someone who is surrendered, who is completely offering up everything they have in faith to Christ. Our praises, God, would you accept my songs? You, you are worthy of it all. God, would you accept my life? Would you accept my money? Would you? It's all worship, and it's all to be brought. What has to happen to make us those kind of worshipers? It's the obedience of the faith. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. And so, in other words, what he's saying here is that missions exist because the nations refuse to glorify Christ. They refuse to give the honor and the glory do his name. So what can we be doing? What can be done? We share the gospel. Why? Because it's the good news which brings people into the obedience of the faith and thus makes them worshipers. We can't make people worship God. And believe me, people have tried. People manipulate people to and, and back in the you know old days, you know, that was what the crusade was crusades were all about. It's like if they're not going to follow Christ, if they're, you know, we're going to take back our land and we're going to establish ourselves and we're going to do it by force and there's a time and a place for that, but that's all in God's hands. That's not what we've been commissioned to do. And that is when we realize that, that the gospel brings about not just faith, but an obedience of faith. The gospel doesn't just get us into heaven, it makes us worshipers here and now. One of the guys that came to Christ while I was living here at SEMO, uh, and I was sharing a little bit about this last night, was a guy by the name of Ryan Roth. And it's funny, all you have to do, anybody that knows, and I know most of you don't know Ryan, but all you have to do is mention his name, and people start chuckling. Ryan was about six four and a half, and uh, he was an absolute beast. Um, he uh, let his hair grow all out, and he was, uh, he was six four, so he's about my height, but he weighed about 285 pounds, and um, he was chiseled just like me as well. Now, I'm just, he was, I mean, he was chiseled. This guy was huge. Well, when he got to school, <laughs> this guy was, was anything, was interested in anything but having a relationship with God. And, uh, and, man, he was a troublemaker, and he was always doing things. I mean, he was just out there all the time. He's got this real wide-open personality. So when he sins, he just does it publicly and, and just lets everybody say, I, I remember them telling the story of him over there in Towers, you know, dumping out a couch 11 
stories up down on the ground. It's like, man, people could have been killed. And it's like, yeah, it's Ryan Roth. And, uh, and I remember I was the chaplain of the football team at that time, and Coach Billings called me into the office, and he said, listen, I need you to talk with, with Roth. And he's like, man, I have been talking to him a lot. And uh, he said, well, he said, I wonder if you could kind of temper his uh, cussing a little bit. I was like, seriously? And um, he's like, yeah, he said, he's literally scandalizing the people, the women and children, at the very top of the stadium. They can't get any further away than they already are. But when he walks off the field, man, he's just cussing. And that was Ryan. It's amazing. But I tell you what, Ryan, after about two years of several of us evangelizing him and sharing the gospel with him, God brought him home. And God began to do an amazing work in his life. And I can remember the first time we all got together and we were laying down in a, in a, over at his apartment to pray uh, together. And, uh, and it, was, uh, it was the first time we had ever prayed together. So I had all these new converts together. And they're just raw and didn't know much of the Bible. And, and, uh, and so it comes around to Ryan's turn. And Ryan is laying there. And there's just dead silence. And Ryan has this real deep voice. And, you know, he's like, God... This is Roth in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Um, God, I don't even know what to say, God, but dominate me. God, dominate me, dominate me. And it was so funny, if you know Ryan, Everybody else that's, that's praying there is starting to, to look up. Everybody knows that you're not supposed to be looking in prayer and stuff, but I start looking around, and everybody else is looking around. It's like, is this a little bit strange or anything like that? Anybody else think this is weird? Man, to me, it was precious. Ryan, every time he showed up to that Bible study, that little discipleship group, he'd be like, hey, guys, I've got a new verse for y'all. It's John 3.16. Have you guys read this? It's unbelievable. He just summarizes it all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's like, have I told you all that? And, and, you know, the other guy's like, yes, Ryan, you share that every week. It's like, man, I love it. Man, here's here's the point of all that. God makes worshipers out of sinners. How does he do it? We share the gospel. We don't just give them the aroma of Christ. That's part of it, man. Give the aroma of Christ with your life. Love them. Be with them. Take them out to eat. Hang out. You know, that kind of thing. Give them the aroma, but don't deprive them of the meal. The meal is the gospel. Number four, the gospel turns the nations into choirs. We see that over and over again. That's what he's saying here. That's the whole point of this passage. He's saying all this... Paul has been set apart for the gospel, and there's this ascending type thing. It's like we see it impacting individuals. But also, we know that the end of this thing is that through whom we've received grace and apostleship, verse 5, to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among who? The nations. The resurrected Lord has already laid his claim and set his domain to take this good news to the nations. So here was what it does. It changes individuals, but it turns whole nations into choirs. You know how I would prove that? I'd just take you over to Revelation chapter 7. 
verses 9, uh, nine and, and reading forward. And what does it say there? It says that in the end, as God is bringing all this together, here's what we find. Sitting there, kneeling down before the throne of God is representatives from every tongue, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And what are they all doing? They're worshiping the one who has saved them through which the gospel came to save them and to bring them before God. It's a vision of the nations worshiping before the throne. The gospel turns the nations into choirs. Do you dream about that? Can you see it? Can you taste it? It's going to happen. Sharing the gospel makes you a part of it. Finally, and fifthly, the gospel must have preeminence in missions. Why? Because fifthly, the gospel ultimately sets apart the name of Christ among the nations. And that's the goal of missions. You see, reaching the nations is just another step on the ladder to what is ultimate, and that is bringing glory to Christ's name. That's our offering. That's the present to him, and that's why we see that picture of the nations gathered around him at the throne. The gospel ultimately sets apart the name of Christ among the nations. This is why Jesus prayed in, in uh, the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Here's what he's saying when he says that. He's saying, first of all, the word hallowed means to sanctify or set apart. So it can mean holy. Therefore, you could say God sanctifies us. It means that, that he makes us holy. Uh, we sanctify Christ's name. And when we do, it means that we treat his name as holy. It's different than any other name. It has this idea of glory to it and worth. So to hallow God's name means that our hearts, our minds, our lives would be consumed with praise and adoration and worship in order to make much of the name of Jesus Christ. That's what worship is. When we're saying something is for the sake of his name, it means that it is fitting and worthy of his name. So what we're doing is taking the gospel to the nations so that the world and everything in it is worshiping and doing exactly what it's supposed to, so that it's worthy of the name that created it. We can apply that to our own lives. Here's what it means. When we give our lives for the, 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 the sake of the name of Christ, we're talking about reverence. We have a greater reverence. It means that we have a greater reverence for his name than our greatest hero. It means that, that we have a greater concern for his glory than our own reputation. What does it mean to set it apart? It means that we have a greater passion for his fame than getting credit for our own accomplishments. It means that we treasure him more than we do our own children. And that's hard to say. It means that we have a deeper affection for him than our own possessions. It means that, that his name is more valuable than even physical health. It means that we esteem him more highly than the most important position that we could possibly covet. It means that, that we delight in him. He is our greatest. 
we take joy in him. Anything, anyone, any experience that even comes close to rivaling the name of Christ should be destroyed in our hearts. Those are mere idols. That's what it means to set apart the name of Christ in our hearts, in our lives. And we want the nations to join in with that. How in the world would we get there? The glory of Christ is the goal of missions. The aim is to make his name to be in a class all by itself. Supreme. That is why we have missions. God wants the fame of his son's name to be supreme throughout the world. We close with God's word. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Father, may this be the desire of our heart. That our greatest joy, our greatest delight, our greatest treasure would be to describe glory to your name and to be able to say to the nations that our Lord reigns. Lord, set us on a trajectory to live our lives in such a way that this becomes true as we proclaim the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name.